You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Sandra Radvanovsky and stage director Jose Maria Condemi are backstage at Lyric. It's high, it's low, it's fast, it's slow. It's everything that Verdi demands of every soprano that he writes for. And to walk out on stage and say, hi, I'm here. The guiding principle for me is what serves the piece better for today's audience. And sometimes that might just be let it be. But also I'm aware that, you know, I, I want the story to keep happening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Mark Travis, producer for this series, and this time we're playing an audio transcription of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Verdi's Ernani. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with singers, directors, and conductors from Lyric's season. Lyric does one session per opera, and they usually take place within a few days of the opera's opening. The Discovery Series is open to the public and is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. Visit lyricopera.org for more information on the Discovery Series, including scheduling and ticket information. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and featured as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now let's head over to the UBS Tower Ballroom for this Discovery Series session, featuring Sandra Radvanovsky and Jose Maria Condemi. Lyric Opera's dramaturg, Roger Pines, is your host. Good evening, everyone. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I'm so pleased to welcome you here for our Discovery Series session devoted to Verdi Zernani. Uh, You should all have cards, and if there are questions that you have for our uh, guests, at a certain point, I will ask you to pass the cards to the middle aisle, and one of my colleagues will come and pick them up, and we will uh, take a selection from them uh, at the end of the session. Lyric Opera is very grateful that the evening after the opening night of our new production of Ernani, our leading lady and our stage director can be with us. Uh, prior to starring as Elvira in Ernani, Sandra Ravanovsky scored great successes at Lyric in her debut as Carlisle Floyd Susanna, and then in her most often performed role, which is Leonora in Il Trovatore. She's one of today's most prominent Verdians internationally. She began the season at San Francisco Opera in Il Trovatore. She's also returning to the Met for Stifelio this season and to Paris for Don Carlo. Among her other successes in Verdi have been Ivespi Siciliani at the Met in Paris and in Vienna. Stifelio at Covent Garden, and Il Trovatore in 11 major international houses to date. As for Puccini, she triumphed in her first Suor Angelica in Los Angeles last season. This season she sings her first Tosca in Denver. Uh, she debuted at Covent Garden in La Scala as Roxanne in Alfano's Cyrano de Bergerac, and she sang the same role for her La Scala debut, and both of those were opposite Placido Domingo. In recent seasons, she has added to her repertoire Manolasco in Leipzig and Lucrezia Borgia in Washington and the Canary Islands. Argentinian stage director Jose Maria Condemi directed Lyric's Tristan und Isolde last season. He was previously associate stage director for our most recent production of Così Fantute. 
This season, he's at Seattle Opera for Trovatore, Sacramento for the Elixir of Love, San Francisco for Faust. He's a former Fulbright scholar and also a former Adler Fellow in stage direction at San Francisco Opera, where, in addition to their recent Tosca, he directed Così Fan Tutte on the main stage and other works for the Merola Opera Program and Western Opera Theater. Among his successes throughout North America have been Ina DeMar in, in Cincinnati, Louisa Miller in Toronto, Bohème in Seattle, Don Giovanni in both Cincinnati and Portland, Trovatore in Austin, and a very rare work of Donizetti, Maria Padilla, in Minneapolis. His production of Poulenc's Les Mamelles de Tiresias at the University of Cincinnati was the first prize winner in the National Opera Association competition. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sandra Ravanovsky and Jose Maria Condemi. Okay, well, we haven't done Ernani since 1984, so I better tell the story. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, I've been petrified about this because Jose Maria is very particular about how he likes the synopsis of Ernani to be told, so we'll see. <laughs> In 16th century Aragon and Saragossa, Ernani is an aristocrat turned bandit, and he is leading a revolt against Don Carlo the king, whom Ernani blames for his father's death. Elvira is loved by Ernani, but she's also being pursued by the king himself and by her own aged uncle, Silva, who is planning to marry her. After Ernani's revolt fails, he appears at Silva's castle disguised as a pilgrim. Silva extends his hospitality, but is later outraged to find him with Elvira. Silva nevertheless conceals Ernani when the king arrives, demanding that Ernani be handed over. After unsuccessfully searching the castle, the king departs, taking Elvira with him. Silva then challenges Ernani to a duel, but the king is their mutual enemy, and they suspend their quarrel in order to seek revenge. Once they achieve it, however, Ernani's life will be in Silva's hands. Ernani gives Silva a hunting horn. When it sounds, Ernani will kill himself. After being elected emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the king pardons the conspirators and awards Elvira's hand to Ernani, whose rightful property is restored because he is, after all, a nobleman who has turned bandit. So on his wedding night, Ernani hears a horn sounding. A black-masked stranger reveals himself as Silva and recalls the oath Ernani had taken. Despite Elvira's pleas, Ernani keeps his vow and stabs himself. Was that all right? That was wonderful. Oh. <laughs> so, so relieved. Everybody but, get that? <laughs> there will be so a now quiz. We have, we have a quiz for you. <laughs> well, so why is this piece not as well known as, say, Rigoletto or Trovatore? Me? Okay. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I have a theory that, that um, repertoire is also subject to fashion trends. And I think things come in and out of fashion. I mean, um, you know, the Donizetti Three Queens was very fashionable when Beverly Seals was singing it, and then it went out of fashion, and now it's coming back. I understand. Yes. <laughs> you are doing one I'm, of them. I'm doing all three of them. Oh, wow. At the same time. <laughs> in a little theater called the Metropolitan Opera, right? Yes. That's fantastic. In like 40 years from now. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So I think I think that's one of the reasons. I also think that um, 
I don't know. You need an extraordinary group of singers to do it, to do it justice, and, you know... None, not that you don't need that for Trovatore as well. No, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And an extraordinary chorus, too, yeah. really, because it's, it's such an ensemble piece, I think. And, um, and you need a great director to explain that non-convoluted plot to, <laughs> <laughs> the whole, to the whole audience, you know? Now, when the two of you were first getting to know the Verdi repertoire... You probably first became acquainted with the f- familiar pieces that we all know and love, like Traviata, Trovatore, Rigoletto, etc. So, when did you first become aware of the early Verdi, which is a whole sort of separate area, a very memorable area of the repertoire? Because Ernani's from 1844 and his opera number yeah. five. Uh, well, no, go ahead, go ahead. I-, I think when I was at the Metropolitan Opera, actually, because Maestro Levine really pushed for me to sing a lot of this early Verdi stuff and said, you know, Sandra, I think that this really is your niche. And I said, you know, come on, this is really difficult stuff. You know, not everybody can sing this. And the more I listened to it, I listened to Leontine Price sing it and Maria Callas and Caballé and all, all the greats really sing this music, and I thought, I can't do justice to it. But the more you listen to it, it really grows on you. And you hear all these complex layers to it. It's not just the music, it's, it's and the story. Yes, it sounds convoluted, but you know, when you really start digging away at it, you go, yeah, okay, that, that could happen. Because it's really, it's, okay, yeah. <laughs> In modern day, I, I would definitely I, marry the king, but you know, <laughs> he's rich, he's good looking. He's rich, he's powerful, he's rich. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's really intriguing after you sing this early music, too, to go and sing some of the later Verdi and see just how much he grew from, say, Hernani to when he wrote Don Carlo. It, it's phenomenal. It really is. Jose Maria, which early Verdi did you come to first? When maybe the first Nabucco one was, yeah, or, Nabucco. Yeah, Nabucco yeah. was the one. And I didn't really know much about the actual opera, but I was just fascinated by the display of you know, vocalism. Yes. And it was actually the Gena Dimitrova recording, which is incredible. And then I got to know Edouard Foscari a little bit. Mm. And, um, but I, you know, I didn't really know much about it. And now, Arnani, I knew the arias, of course, but I didn't, didn't know them in context or how they worked in relationship to each other. And um, I have to say that the piece has really grown on me quite significantly. Oh, me too, absolutely. Yeah. It, do a Foscari, there's one that you might want I to know, consider. I know, add it yes. to the list. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Um, we'll get into the music more thoroughly um, in a few minutes, but let's look at the dramatic content of this piece first. It is based on a play by Victor Hugo, Hernani, accent on the last syllable. Um, so, Jose Maria, what characterizes the play as far as the language is concerned? It's very arched and convoluted and... Um, long. Mm, we have, for example, one of the moments in the opera that when the king sings in, in Act 3, um, his aria, uh, in the place of five-page-long uh, monologue, for example. Um, so it's, it's very, you know, it's also kind of the pinnacle of rom- romantic French um, dramaturgy. And as you, maybe you have read that the piece was a very, it caused a lot of controversy when it was the, the, the play when it was uh, first uh, done. And as, but at the same time, it was quite popular. It stayed on repertoire for, I think, yes. played for two months yes. every single night. And, uh, 
But then it's also interesting for me to see uh, what Verdi did with it, with the story, and which changes he introduced to the story uh, to make it his own. And then Verdi had a very um, clear take on the story and on the characters and also on how the story is told. Well, how does reading the play, though, affect the way you direct the opera? Um, it does, well, I read the play and then I forget that I read it because all that information, at least to me, can become a little detrimental because then you just try to somehow stage the play through the opera. Mm. And in this particular case, Verdi, the actual story, he didn't depart too much from the story of, um, of the play. I mean, the events are pretty much the same, except for the end, in which in the play, both um, Silva and Hernani, uh, Hernani and Elvira and Silva the three killed themselves. Right. The three of them mm. committed triple suicide. <laughs> but Verdi did not want the resolution to, to drag on for too long, thank God. <laughs> so he just has Arnani kill himself and then the curtain comes in. Um, and then the other, the other major point of departure is that the king in the play, as well as the actual king, the only true historical character that exists is Charles V that became um, Charles V, the first that then became Charles V. He was not as ni nice of a, of a guy as is depicted in the, in the opera. But otherwise, he followed the events of the play very closely. So I, I did read the play, and I took all of that into consideration, and then I tried to forget about it because the opera is quite different. It's, it's its own little you know, thing in itself. and um, Somebody I, else's interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Sandra, you have two situations where you have to deal with that whole question, do I read the play or not? Because you mm -hmm. also sing Elisabeth and Don Carlos, uh -oh. and there's Schiller's Don Carlos Street. So thinking about Hernani, did you bother with the play? I didn't. Honestly, sorry. <laughs> didn't read it. <clears throat> so... <laughs> So have you been in situations where reading the dramatic source of a particular piece has really actually helped? Yeah, Traviata. Oh, I have to say, that, that really helped develop the character of Violetta a little bit more for me. Because you don't, there's a big span of time that you don't really see in her life. And so that kind of helped me fill the gaps. But the problem is, I think, when you read the play, and if the play is so much different than the opera, I know it the director knows it, or whoever's read the book knows it, but 70 or 80% of the audience who hasn't read the book are going, but why are they doing that? You know, It doesn't relate, if it doesn't relate to the opera, then not everybody understands what's going on. So I think you really have to be true to what the opera is first, and then if maybe some of the, the book relates to it, then you can usher that into it. Mm. Now you start off your first scene with what I, think is the best-known music in the whole score, which is Elvira's aria, Hernani and Volami. So what are the most important elements of her character that you want to be sure are evident to the audience in that very first scene, your recitative, then your cavatina, and your cabaletta? That she's happy, that she's in love, because the rest of the opera, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's like a Jewish lady. Oh, my. She's always a eye. It, it, it's the one moment, really. And then for two minutes at the very last act, oh, she's happy again. No, no. But no. <laughs> what I find interesting is that she is, it's also a great um, brushstroke about the character, the fact that she remains, in a way, 
unapologetically clueless about what's going on around her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there is a huge political turmoil going on. Is that on. why you wanted her blonde? <laughs> oh, oh, I knew it. I no, but I mean, that is who Elvira is. You know, she, she's the, the, the uber romantic uh, part of the story, and she's like, you know, risking everything and, 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 and you know, his lover's life too, yeah. just in pursuit of this yeah. love affair. She's, she's just, oh, you, all you guys, stop it. Yeah. But, she, but at the beginning, at the beginning, yeah. you're saying that she's happy, she's in love, but at the same time, she's saying, Ernani, come and take me away from this old man. Well, I'm in love. I'm happy because I'm in love. But once again, she's oblivious. She's living in the house of her uncle. Hello. You know? So who wants to marry her? Who wants to marry her? <laughs> but I think that she has a very adventurous side to her. And I think yeah. there's a lot of um, moments in the opera that is without typical and they go, really? Did that just happen? that I think are justified by this element of her personality. For example, one of my favorite ones is when, when in Act 2, uh, Silva tells you, get out of here and go to your room, and then you come back immediately after to sing a love duet. Well, she's a determined woman, too, and I think she's really unafraid to stand up to it. A king, stand up to an old rich man that wants to marry me, and to tell Ernani, you know, I love you, but, you know, get your stuff together. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, th I do think she's a slightly strong woman in a way, in the same vein as Leonore and Trovatore. We were, I, I wanted to ask you about that because when we talked last season about Trovatore mm -hmm. and also when we talked about Ernani the first time, you made it clear that these are young women. Yes. And, and that's a real... Can you develop that point a little? Because that's so neglected so often in these operas. Well, sure. You know, here I am, a 40-year-old woman playing a 16- or 17-year-old girl... And, you know, I'm supposed to be youthful and, and, and active. But she is. This is the first love that she's ever felt in her life. And imagine when we were that young, feeling, feeling that passion and, and how overwhelming it was. And that's what I really think this character is the underlying theme of her. She's so in love that she would do anything, just like Leonora in Trovatore. She would do anything for this, this love that she has. So what you, what I find that you are bringing to these women, which you never see, is a kind of, is youth and impetuosity, which you just don't get in Trovatore and Ernani from... Well, they're, they're young. Yeah, they're, that's they're what people forget. Um, I'm curious... Jose Maria, as to what you want to, us to get from Ernani's character in his first scene, what are the what are the qualities that are evident? And because you know he has recitative aria cabaletta, same as Elvira does. Mm -hmm. Well, that first scene is also um, well. That's you know, Berdi also does this thing of, of, of uh, labeling each scene, right? Like he does in Trovatore, and that first mm -hmm. scene is called the Bandit, and that tells you know this is a scene about somebody that's a rebel and is living you know, outdoors as a criminal, even though he's a noble and is leading this revolution. So I think, you know, the important part of that, that scene is that it really sets up the romantic tone for the character and the piece. Then after that, we move on into more noble stuff and a lot more political stuff. But that first scene is really about that side of his personality that connects with the romantic what is, what is he expressing in that first scene? I mean, what is the aria about, for example? Well, the, the, the aria, well, no, he, of course, he's, it's a very lyrical aria about, you know, what he, when he first met Alvira and what it means, you know, to him. But the, the main action of that scene is after the aria when he says, um, si rapisca, meaning let's go kidnap her or, you know, free her, but, you know, in a very adventurous way. 
and everybody gets turned on by this idea and that's how the scene ends. So um, that's, um, it was important for me to, to show that element. That's why I staged the scene in a way that I think it's playful and it also has a very romantic tone to it with an oversized moon and an itinerant you know, tent that tells me, or at least I thought, would give us the idea that these guys are on the run all the time. And he's a criminal, I mean, he's, you know. We also have the king. There are four principles in this piece, very small. The other three characters are strictly supporting. There are four people that we're concerned with. There is the king, Carlo. What do we sense of the kind of king? Do we get from his arias and his duet with Elvira the kind of king that he actually is? He's many kings. Mm. He's many kings. He he is. Well, but first of all, it's it's uh, the way I, the way I see it, and the, what I think Verdi did with the character, which is a lot more layered and complex than in the play. It's not so much the the the, the, um, the journey of a king, but the journey of a man trying to become a king. So in the first uh, scene, when he uh, sneaks his way into Elvira's room, he's just a guy that is you know acting on his hormones. He happens to be a king, but he's not acting as a king. And he's not, as we discussed, you know, Elvira calls him up on that and says, Il re dove, where is the king? I don't see him in the way he's behaving. So that's the first instance, the first facet of the character. Then in Act 2, he's trying to become the king, and he does that by embodying the more superficial version of it, which is the abusive, the one that abuses his power, the one that doesn't really know how to deal with people against him and how to deal with the political complications of the situation. And then in Act 3, he finally sort of becomes, um, rises above all of that. And in the most human side of him, he decides to forgive all of his enemies. And then he's not there in Act 4. I That's, think he's the most complex character. He is, in the whole by, by far. By far. Would, would there have been anything that he would have been able to contribute to the last act? I mean, he just disappears from sight. We don't see him at all in that last act, which is just about the other three. No. Is, that's not a problem? Okay. I think he... No. No, I mean, I think he's just, like he says, in the, um, changing point for me for the characters in the text is right before he forgives everybody in Act 3, and he says, Mie brame odome, my desires I have tamed. And I really think he means that. I think he's, you know, he's no longer, you know, um, man. We have the fourth principal, who is the base, Silva, your uncle who wants to marry you. And you are right there when he sings his entrance aria. So that aria is basically, he's saying, I have an, I have an old heart and I, and I thought my heart could be awakened to love and it's my hopes have been dashed, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and that I'm unfaithful. Right. So what's going through your mind when you're sitting there as Elvira listening to Silva sing this? I feel a lot of compassion for him. I really do. He's a relative of mine. I don't hate him. I, I personally don't think I don't hate him. But would I marry him? No. You, you know, I, I think she just feels sad for the guy because she knows she's not going to marry him. And... Uh, it's standing right next to is the man that she loves, Ernani. And in the same room is also the king, who just tried to seduce her, which he doesn't know. Complex. But at, this is the same man where you and the, the very first line of your aria, you said, Ernani, come take me away from the abhorrent embraces of this old man, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, she's young. 
You know, she, when you're young, when you're 16 and you're so in love, you go, I hate him. No, I love him. No, uh, I don't know. You know, that's, <laughs> she's impetuous. Don't forget it's her wedding day, too. Yeah. So he's, he's really at a crossroads in terms of, you know, she knows something big is happening unless somebody comes to take her away. So there's a time constraint so, issue there. So what kind of guy would say these things about his old heart hoping to find love it would say that and then would be capable, of, on the other hand, of such incredible ruthlessness and vengeful. Well, he, he actually doesn't say... He actually talks about, having a, he talks about having young feelings in an aging body, which to me was, is very interesting because um, he recognizes that his body is aging and that you know, he's facing mortality, mm-hmm. yet he has the crush of a young man over a relative. So that is an interesting thing to, to explore. He doesn't, you know, he, he, and there's also instances where he says that anger makes him feel young. Every time he picks up a sword and tries to rally his knights, it's all about trying to reclaim a power that, that he doesn't have because his body is given, you know, given up. And that's also an old, olden times, honor and nobility and all of that. People respected honor. And, and it was the honorable thing to do was to love the man that you're supposed to love. And so I think he feels betrayed by me that how could I do that? And also then the honor comes into call at the end when he says to Ernani, well, when I give you this horn, you have to blow it. It's an honor thing. Ernani feels like he has to do that because it's the honorable right thing to do. Is there anything then in these characters that you would call genuine development from scene to scene? Do they grow and change in the course of the four acts? Mm. They do. Me, no. No. <laughs> Me, no. No, I'm, I'm the little pawn that goes, oh, this man, this man, this man. I don't change. I always say, I love Hernani, I don't love Silva, I don't love the king. Basta. But the king really The king is progresses. the one that has the, the biggest development. Huge change. Yeah. Yeah, but, and uh, Silva, yeah. no, not so much, no. Uh, no, no. Not so much, actually. He's he wants just... me. He wants Ernani dead. No. Same. <laughs> Ernani? No, not so much either. He wants me. He wants all them dead. So, no. But the, so the king really does yeah. grow the king from, has a, from the, 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 Yeah, he does. Um, so, so you feel that Ernani, you were talking about the vow just before. You, th- you think that he makes the vow to Silva just because this is an honorable thing? It's, it's hard to make it convincing to an audience yeah. today, I think. And you? that's well, it. It's, it's an old, it's such uh, an yeah. old thing. A million dollar question. Um, why is it so hard to believe about trying to do the right thing? Don't we all face that every day? But why is this the right thing? Because Silva says so. We don't really have to explain. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a way of behaving that was, you know, true for the time. And he also, he ruins Elvira's life. Doesn't don't she forget, say, why do you want to kill two souls, two people? Doesn't she, when yes. she's trying to keep it from at killing the, himself? At the but, very yeah. last scene. Right. Yes. You know, when you ask me about reading the play or not, yes. that really doesn't clarify what's really going on. But history does. And what we know from history, and this plays significantly in the plausibility of the story, is that this king, Charles V, was the first one uh, to unite... Spain didn't exist as we know it today. It was two different areas, Aragon and Castilla. And they did not really necessarily get along with each other. But 
on the figure of Charles I, they became united. In fact, he actually united four different houses in Europe, Castilla and Aragon, and the Habsburgs in Austria, and the Valois, I think, in French. Right? Just think about all this power together into one person who was actually not meant to be the king, because he actually ruled with his mother, who was Juana la Loca, Johanna, Johanna the Mad One. So if you just take this little bit of information and you realize that all, everything that happens in the opera is not so much about doing the right thing or not, but it's this interlocking web of alliances and things. And you have Silva that says, uh, you want something from me? Well, then you, you got to give him something back. Oh, and he saved his life. He saved his That's life. A, not a small thing. And, and then, you know, Arnani tries to pay him back with this pledge. Well, I'll pay you back whenever you want, just not now, but... Later on, you can, you can claim my life, and it's an arrangement. You know, it's not really no different than, oh, this is a bad example, but, you know, it's just like they, a suicide could, bomber. But they yeah. could just as easily have gone on and, you know, without this being necessary. But then would you want to have a good story? Oh. And it's opera. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's opera. you got to have, come on. <laughs> Why um, do you think, well... I don't want to get... Uh, all the examples that come to mind are not the right ones. Okay. They're kind of politically incorrect. But, you know. Seriously, to have them come at the end and say, oh, no, just kidding, sorry. You don't have to kill yourself. So, it be opera. So you think it's, it's better this way to have just Ernani die at the end and not have the other two kill themselves also? Oh, well, there's no time. We actually no. tried. We, we tried. tried to, we tried to have... I oh, you were going to have the there. three I get close, but then the curtain we try, I, wanted, I wanted to see if it would work out better, but then there's just no time, and there's su- it's such a yeah, gesture. I wanted to talk to you about that. That curtain You want to change down. it for Saturday? It comes down so quickly. <laughs> the curtain comes down? I'm there, and then... No. Oh, okay. No, it's okay. I wanted, yeah. When I did it at the Met, actually, Ferruccio Fornanetto playing Silva slashed my throat. Ooh. Ooh, ooh. And yeah, and then people came up to us afterwards in, at backstage and said, I read the book. It's not in the book that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's time to talk about the music. Um, I think at this point, um, we'll give you a few more minutes and be, to, to, to listen to what we have to say about the music before you pass your questions. But can we talk about the overall... Verdi had a word, he used the word tinta to talk about the sort of color of a piece, this, the aura of it, the, the, the basic quality that communicates. So, so what is that in, in the case of this piece? What is the tinta? How, how is this piece? Can you generalize a bit about... Um papa? <laughs> There's a little um papa, yeah. I mean, the, fir- the first papa. scene is very tinta. bouncy and... Um, yeah. Sort of makes you even want to have that kind of life, you know? Yeah, I, the... I don't know if there's just one color. I think there's mm-hmm. many. I think there's many colors, and I think each character has many colors. Yes, I start out happy and blah, 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 but I think Elvira suffers quite a lot. The king is contemplative, I think, definitely. Mm-hmm. His music is always very lyric, very soft-spoken in a way. Silva's always barking. You know? Although he does have the most beautiful aria that oh, he, it, beautiful. for his entrance scene. He starts out lyrically, yes. Yeah. Okay, so there he has two colors, but then after that he just barks. Mm. And Ernani is always just wailing away, you know, just singing these beautiful long lines. I think everybody has a different tinta in this. I don't know if there's just one color to it. Now, you have 
um, a very, well, let's talk about your aria just on the vocal side. What does it really demand that, inc- well, you, well, you have the most amazing first act to sing generally. Oh, yeah. I know, I know. I mean, why didn't he give me my, like, just 10 more minutes to warm up just a little bit more? You know, he always does this. All the character, all the Verdi operas I sing. You walk out, you sing the big hit. Oh. You know, it's, it's difficult. So what is required, what, what is he asking you to achieve technically in this, in this first scene, the recitative aria cabaletta? What, I mean, that is different from what would be required of you in, say, Don Carlo or okay. yeah, Otello yeah. or one of those pieces. Well, I think the way Verdi writes his operas is that when you do sing an aria slash cabaletta, it is a moment where time slightly stands still. It is an inner dialogue that I'm having that I'm sharing with the public. So it is a moment where I quickly tell a story, as opposed to the big ensembles oftentimes are real time. You know what I mean? So my aria is slightly like time stands still, and I'm telling you the story that's going on in my head. So from that aspect, it's a lot of information that I'm telling you what happens. I am alone in the house. I'm with Silva. I don't want to be with him. I love Hernani. Please come take me away. But it's also my inner feeling as well as my inner dialogue. So I have to not only tell that story, but also vocally have to tell that story and use the music to help tell that story. And it's not the easiest music in the world. So why not? (laughs) It's high, it's low, it's fast, it's slow, it's everything that Verdi demands of every soprano that he writes for. And to walk out on stage and say, Hi, I'm here, it's quite difficult. Although, isn't she rangier than most of the the other Verdi ladies? And that you're covering what? Yeah, high C is, is the highest, and I go down to a low A. Yeah, so it's nearly so, to an F octave. Close, close to Vespri, really, the, yeah. the range of Vespri. But it's just that first aria, and then the rest of the opera actually is not as rangy for me. Um, you, you have, immediately after you have your recitative aria cabaletta, you have a very intense duet with the baritone. And her line in there is just going, oh, oh, time to do the questions. Okay, if any of you have any questions, if you could send them to the aisle so that they can be collected, that would be great. Um, so you have this big duet with the baritone, and yeah. your line is going all over the place. What is going on with her that would justify her vocal line being so extreme? Rage. I really do think it's rage and outrage that this man, how dare he enter my private space at nighttime, knowing that I'm engaged to Silva and knowing that I'm in love with another man, and how dare he come in here? like this and that's what I really think it's it's modified screaming really at him get out get out I don't love you and when he says that he loves me she just totally loses it and says how dare you say that to me I'm a noble woman you can't do this to me that immediately after you sing that you have a big trio with the tenor and the baritone so um and then that is followed by one of the most exciting finales of any Verdi, in the act of any Verdi opera that I can think of. So you were able to say to me, in the, the first time we talked to Verdi mm-hmm. Anani, something that I have not been able to get many other singers to articulate, and I mm-hmm. hope you can do it for our audience. What it feels like to you as a Verdi soprano to, ha- to, to 
project over mm. orchestra, chorus, and the other principles as Elvira must in that first act finale. Well, as any, any of these big Verdi sopranos have to do in these big ensembles, in Trovatore, in, in Vesperi, not so much in Traviata, Don Carlo in the big auto defacing, you have to have enough what we would call thrust in the voice and enough vocal weight that it has to be like another instrument riding on top of this big, huge ensemble because you don't want it to just kind of mix in with everybody. It's an independent line, and you want it to kind of ride above. And it's quite difficult. It really is. It's something because it's so easy to give too much, and it's still just the first act. And if you give 120%, 150%, when you come to act four, you're done. So it's, it's learning, all Verdi operas are like this, it's learning how to gauge and to really tell how much you can give, and that only comes from doing it, doing it, doing it. How do you compare this with the, the other Verdi opera that you have sung with us quite recently, um, Il Frovatore? Um, musically? Or In terms can... of what it requires of you. Oh, this is definitely not nearly as demanding as Trovatore. Not nearly. No. Interesting. Would you agree? I, yeah, I yeah. agree. Trovatore is, is so much more, for me, complex musically because it's not all these big ensembles. It's more of a dialogue opera. So I have two big arias, uh, two big cabalettas, two huge duets. It's, and it's more intimate in that sense. And the vocal lines are more exposed. In a big, these big ensembles as... I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Oftentimes, singers just stop singing. (laughs) I don't, but oftentimes they don't. They just don't sing them because they're saving their voice. So Trovatore doesn't really have that for me. It's it's really more just solo singing. So more dramatic in a way. Right. Jose Maria, you have these big... Cavatina Cabaletta scenes to direct and you have these big trios especially the one in the last act which is probably close to 10 minutes and you have these huge ensembles to deal with so how do you keep it from, how do you keep this piece from being what I would call a stand and deliver opera or on the other hand is stand and deliver in Ernani actually frequently a totally satisfactory way of presenting it on the stage? We call it park and bark. Park and bark. Yes. No, but we, we don't do that. We don't do that. Park and bark. No, you just do little things that keep this, you know, the, the, the guiding principle for me is what serves the piece better for today's audience. And sometimes that might just be let it, that let it be. But also I'm aware that, you know, I, I want it to keep, I want the story to keep happening. Mm-hmm. And I do little things. I mean, the, the, act, the concertante at the end of the act one scene two, I do little things that keep the story going. I have the king send uh, his squire to separate Elvira and Hernani. Little things um, during Silva's aria. Keeping the tension. Keeping the tension. This is all about... Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. But really, really just to, you know, not, not just, um, um, oh, I guess it's a concertante, therefore we're not expected to do anything now. It doesn't mean you have to displace yourself or move on stage, but there's still something going on. And it's actually quite exciting when you play with the tension that then that takes five minutes to resolve. I mean, we talked a little bit about this last year in Tristan. Tristan takes that to an extreme where you wait five hours for the resolution of a chord. But you can apply the same principle and do it many, many times throughout the course of Hernani's you know, evening. 
Um, there are such incredible vocal challenges in this piece for all the principles. So how do you, Jose Maria, how do you work on, on producing this piece at the same time, how do you work keeping those vocal challenges in your mind and considering the singers in that respect? Um, I'm thinking, you know, in past productions, has, have singers actually said to you, I'm not going to do that because I have a high C. I don't use what happened in the past. With It doesn't help because, like, with Sandra, as soon as I learn about the many injuries she has going on, <laughs> I assume she wouldn't be able to do anything. And we haven't had to adjust pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. And she keeps surprising me. And this is just another example of what a singer can or cannot do. And I think with vocal, vocalism is the same thing. Some singers are just uh, willing to go and do it, and some singers don't. So I just mm -hmm. take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. This is, I don't know, how many of you saw either the dress rehearsal or opening night? Oh, a lot of you. So you know that this is an incredibly sumptuous production. It was designed by Scott Marr, and I know that uh, the discussions have gone on for the better part of a year as to what this uh, production was really going to look like. So what were your priorities, Jose Maria, in putting the whole visual side of this together? Well, I, when we decided that we were going to go for a, what you would call traditional, yeah, you can say that, but it's also more straightforward. Basically, tell the story in a way that's coherent and that it makes sense. Um, and then when we agreed on the actual visual vocabulary of the piece, I wasn't. I wanted to make sure that it wouldn't just be like a museum piece, you know, where it's just beautiful, but that it doesn't. It's detached from the story. So every choice we made about the design had to do on keep the storytelling going. Um, there's a, there's certain decisions that we made about the first scene to convey the romantic side of Arnani. There's a certain decisions we made in the second scene to deal with the fact that there's very intimate moments like Elvira's aria, mm -hmm. and then very public moments when everybody's on stage and, you know, and then the wedding, the, the act two wedding, the wedding, the fourth wedding has a certain quality visually that is very different from the wedding for love, which is the act four wedding. And the same thing in the tomb of Carlo Magno, which is an actual place you can go visit. I mean, that tomb exists. Yet, to me, it wasn't interesting to just do like a, you know, a documentary of, of a tomb, but mm. that, that tomb, the way we present it, still tells a story. Mm. Now, there are some extraordinary costumes. I think we have 246 of them in this production. So, Sandra, what are your costumes like? <sighs> They're a dream come true. They really are. They're absolutely gorgeous. And to have costumes made just for you, Unbelievable, and thank God for them, I have to say, because, um, <laughs> slight little impediment here, um, beautiful, lush, gorgeous, I mean, seriously, a queen would have worn these costumes, they are so beautiful. That leads me to my next question, I mean, these characters that you play mm -hmm. in most of your Verdi roles, they are generally noble women, mm -hmm. so, or queens, frequently, mm -hmm. so are these regal gowns that you've got to wear... Are they a help or are they a hindrance generally in terms of their effect on your posture and carriage on the stage and indeed on your vocal technique? Yeah, they, they, do, they help me. Oftentimes singers don't like having these tight corsets because they say, oh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. But for me, they help because they keep me supported and especially right now since my balance is a little off. Um, they help. And 
I think they also help me find the character because you walk differently when you have a big skirt on. You walk differently when you're tucked into a corset, when you have different shoes on, when you have a rake on stage. Of course, you have more of a presence. You think about the way you walk, about the way you present yourself. Absolutely. Occasionally in these characters, not so much with Elvira, but you're dealing with, with headgear frequently also. Oh, that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say I like that. One of, for those of you that haven't seen the opera, if you're coming to see it, one of the most fascinating things to watch that you won't get to see actually is the transition between Act 3 and Act 4 because we end Act 3 with a big coronation of the king and we start Act 4, there's no intermission, with a big party oh. and everybody has to change costumes and this is over 80 people Every in a minute second. and a half and I wish you could see what's happening backstage. <laughs> Because it involves everybody leaving the stage, changing, and coming back. And I'm the first one done. By and there's a whole system that's fascinating with chairs, with names, and yeah. I wish we would show that. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. You probably think, oh, they're changing the set. It ain't about the set. It's about the yeah. costumes. I think crazy. anybody who knows this piece would look at this production and recognize it as... Ernani, but sticking for the moment exclusively with productions of Verdi, mm. have you seen in America or abroad any work that would not be recognizable as the opera in question just because of the outrageous visual choices well, that were made? That's a very famous mm -hmm. one. You probably have seen it on YouTube of the Nabucco with the bumblebees. Oh. A friend of mine was in that. Actually. You have to see, you have to Google that. I'm finding it oh, fascinating. Please, the productions that we found. Oh. And I think the idea is that, um, well, I shouldn't, because I, I, I have no proof, but yeah, the chorus is dressed as bumblebees. So as uh, Leonora is sing, um, Abigail is singing the cabaleta, they are doing. Uh, <laughs> and they're stinging each other with the stingers. Oh, You've seen it, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, a friend of mine was in it. Yeah. In, oh, in was Germany? in it? Yeah. Oh. The question is, Sandra, were you in Munich to see the Rigoletto that was out of Planet oh. of the Apes? But a friend of mine was also in that too, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so how many of these productions have you been asked to One. do? One. <laughs> One. And, and I learned from that because after that production, I said to my manager, okay, if I'm singing in Germany or if I'm singing in Europe and I have another terrible production like this, I want to see the video of it first because really, and I have to know who the directors are now. That's but one thing is that, you know, I, I'm not saying that that is wrong or right. I saw the most fascinating regulator I've ever seen was in Luzerne, in a tiny theater, and it was what you would call Euro trash, mm -hmm. except that it was so right. If it makes sense, I'm it okay made, with it. Yeah, if yeah. the director can tell me why he wants me to stand on my head and, you know, s sing in tongues, okay, that's fine, but give me a justification yeah. for it. What, Sandra, what, in this one outrageous one that you did, what did, they, what did the director ask you to do oh. on the stage? <laughs> it was a trovatory in Berlin, by a lovely director by the name of Hans Neuenfels. And I was not the first person that did it. It was a remount of it. And I'm singing D'Amor Surare Rose, right? First off, I am in, my face is painted silver, and I have a cornucopia on my head. I kid you not, a cornucopia. And I have peignets that are like out to here. And I'm singing D'Amor. There's a man in a tuxedo uh, with tails with a dove on his finger. And I'm singing Dalmore. And he takes poison and goes like this to the audience. Gives the poison to the dove. I'm singing this beautiful music. The dove he brings over to me. And the dove goes on the stage. 
The prompter proceeds to take the dove that's dead now and holds it up. I mean, it's just... I, I, and then there's... Oh, I'm riding... I make my entrance in the first act riding this fake horse, and there's two men behind me. How do I say this nicely? <laughs> Homosexual men fondling each other as I'm singing Tatia la Notte. And I just asked the director, I'm sorry, you know, I know you have an idea here, a vision. Why? <laughs> and he said, because I want it that way. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I proceeded to go home, packed my bags. The last act, the tenor, Richard Marchison, had to crawl on his hands and knees like a dog while I had to spank him. <laughs> we both packed our bags. They picked us up at the airport and begged us, please don't go. And I said, yeah, fine. You know what? who I would not want to be is that director's assistant director for the revival. Oh. When you have to sell this idea oh. to you <laughs> oh. and it's not yours. And... and so I said I would come back. We both would come back. But I said I will never turn up stage. Everything I sing, I am going to sing out to the audience. I don't know what, want to know what happens behind me. I really don't. And they said, fine, 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 okay. But I mean, the bottom line is just keep your mm -hmm. minds open because sometimes oh, yeah. it works. And that's sometimes it. That's it my work. philosophy. I will give a director. We never had this because I love you so much and you're yeah. fabulous. Well, and you've never turned up stage. You don't know what's happening behind you. Yeah. <laughs> Roger has a cameo role. <laughs> You should. You. I thought Remember when I keep saying don't turn up stage? Don't, don't turn, turn up, up stage. That's, that's why. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have some interesting questions from all of you, so I want to get to a few of them. For Jose Maria, when you were first getting to know Verdi repertoire, did you see a particular performance that pointed the way to you regarding what Verdi was supposed to be like on stage? Hmm. Yeah, I guess the 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 Fidelity movie of Traviata with mm -hmm. Teresa Strada. Oh, yes. To me, it was so against what the prejudice about opera acting was. I mean, that was truly, or also the Otello movie with Domingo. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is that is an award-winning performance. By if you turn off the volume and you know they're singing, it's just incredible. Yeah. So those two movies were, you know. Mind-blowing. This is for Sandra. You sung Verdi in Italy. Did you enjoy the audiences there? Very much so. Very much so. Completely different. All, all European audience, actually. They're completely different because it's so... Nothing against Americans. It's so rooted in their tradition, in their upbringing, that six years old they go to opera, and it's like every town in Italy has an opera house, not Chicago, Milwaukee, but you know, Chicago, everything in between has an opera house. So it's just like cinema there in, in Italy. So when people would come back to compliment you on your performance, would, would they often making very clear that they knew every note of the piece that you were Absolutely, singing? and they made it clear which notes I didn't sing well to. <laughs> very clear. Learned Italian very quickly. <laughs> For Jose Maria, could you talk about the challenges of tackling a new production such as this one versus the challenge of remounting a production that was originally directed by someone else as you did with the Tristan last season? Um, well, the challenges of 
doing the new productions that all the responsibility is on me and my designer mm-hmm. and every choice every everything you see it's you know it's for better or worse is my my responsibility doing a production on somebody else's um concept or set um sometimes the challenge if, if i don't know there's not enough information about what the original intentions of the director were you know we keep records and books and things like that but you know things change and you're dealing with human beings so you know you i also don't want to like just repeat something that was said 20 years ago because it made sense then well and also they're different singers too different singers you know so. and i have my own take on things and even though i of course i try to honor the original um intent of the director you know it's I actually, I think I would be doing a disservice to the director if I were to just stick to the book too much. Because I think I need to find out what, it, what was the spirit of it and then try to get my singers to, you know, do that, but in the spirit of it. So in the Tristan, I, I think I, I honor, you know, uh, Mr. Hockney's... I, I saw what he wanted, but I didn't repeat what other people had done because it had been foolish. So it's, each, each um, takes a different approach, I guess. So, Sandra, you're prob- you are probably in frequent situations where you are being given blocking that was created on somebody mm. else where you have to say, well, it works better for me to do it this way. Yes. And yes. Does, how, does, how is that generally received? <laughs> um, <laughs> depends upon the director. Depends upon the production. And who did it before me. For instance, I mean whoever does this Ernani again, you know, uh, they might not be able to kneel or because I, I said it with a cast. So it's always a very touchy, touchy issue because I am uh, a very out there actress. I, I really like to what they call chew the scenery. And um, so oftentimes singers, especially in this repertoire, don't like all the flailing around that I do. So, is that a good way to put it? No, but the thing about that, I this is I'm gonna this is a compliment that you don't know about. But Sandra, is, it's about being in um, in your body, mm. and as a director, I'm really I cannot deny the sort of the wisdom of the body. And if somebody has sang Leonora or any role hundred times, it'll be foolish for me to try to like stick my brainy idea into their body and disregard what is being offered to me. So I've learned that, you know, I have my ideas and I try to sell them, but at the same time with Sandra, it's been a lot of back and forth about things and mm-hmm. things that I f- didn't think about that she offered that, of course, they make complete sense and I love. And also, I love the fact that yesterday, because I, I write all these notes, pages and pages of notes, and then my assistant takes into the dressing room and I went to say hi and she told me, I read them, I'm not sure I'll be able to do all of those, and to me, that was a huge compliment because to me, it meant that you, it's in your body already. So try mm. to read something off the paper and try mm. to satisfy me is not really a good thing in a way. Of course, I still had to give you the, yeah. the notes, but... Yeah, it's okay. And I still tried to do it. I know you did. But I mean, I, I was, it was very refreshing that you didn't say, yeah, you know, because there's so much of trying to please the director and please yeah. him that it just takes away from the... I try. The art. I, I know you Here's one for Sandra. What do you think Elvira will do with her life after Ernani's death? Uh, um, she joins a support group. She what? <laughs> she joins a support group for people support. like her. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, 
do I care? Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I should care. I should care, couldn't I? Um, I think she kills herself, quite frankly, you know? And if she doesn't, Silva's going to slit her throat, right? Against right. what Victor you know what Hugo wanted. She goes back to the king and says, remember me? Hi, <laughs> you still got a lot of money? I think I made a wrong decision. <laughs> You're kind of cute. Here's my number. Uh, <laughs> hello? That's Why what I would do. <laughs> That's all so, I'm saying. Another one for you. you. You have such an engaging stage presence. So how have you learned to successfully distinguish, both musically and in terms of your acting, the many different Verdi heroines you play? Good question. Um, well, I, I always try to bring some of myself into every character because I think it makes it more human to the audience. Um, so... Every character, I think, has a different, a different rhythm, I would call it, because I think of characters as having rhythms. Mm. Um, somebody once told me what's in their pocket. That didn't work for me. But um, I try to find what really makes them tick. The one thing that makes them themselves, what makes Elvira, Elvira, and to really hone in on that, that nugget and then go out from there, as opposed to just making her a generalized woman, oh, I'm in love, to really find out why she's in love and to relate some of my life experiences then to that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes her more relatable to all of you when you do bring in some of your human feelings and your human emotions that try to understand why okay yeah the first time I was so complete completely and utterly in love that I would do anything for this man okay what did I feel great and I try to bring that to the character say that again a Chicago question It's a lovely coincidence, but they were talking about the painters that, uh, the, the influences for this production well over a year ago, so I'm sure that it never occurred. But, well, when you have time, it would be great for both yeah. of you to mm -hmm. head over there. The, the second part of this, thank you for mentioning that. Um, the second part of this question is, Verdi's women seem to have so much in common, uh, not least their, of all their names. So do they, <laughs> do they ever run together in your mind sometimes? Hmm. No, no. I, I will say, though, I was singing Stefania once at the Met uh, with Placido Domingo. I was just little, the little hand servant Dorotea. And um, he started singing his first aria. Maestro Levine was in the pit conducting, and all of a sudden he just kind of went that way. And he started singing another Verdi aria. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oops, wrong opera. <laughs> But no, luckily, I mean, I'll touch wood. I, I, I'm okay with that still. But there is a, com ooh, there is a common language. I mean, in, yeah. in rehearsal process, I will many times say, okay, this is the, this is the Traviata moment, oh, or yeah. this is the, the, the Trovatore moment, or this oh, is yeah. the Macbeth. But there's a beautiful Macbeth moment in, in Hernani when the conspirators plot against, you know, with each other. So it's, you yeah, know, it's yeah, sort of the same. 
But you hear the same Tough. themes over and over again. And that's, it's interesting. Mm. For Jose Maria, Hernani's complicated. A lot happens offstage between acts and the audience is expected to keep up. Did this affect your approach to staging? Yeah. I mean, you, you, try, to ha- you, you try to have the characters have all that information in, in the way they deliver things. Um, but again, the story is what it is. And if Bertie wanted all that information to have been in the story, he would have put it there. So if he edited already, it's really not up to me to re-edit. But of course, we talk a lot about what happens in between and why things are said and what people know. The other thing that's very common, talking about challenges of directing, is that sometimes singers get to sing so many times these roles that there's a lot of information that they have that the characters are not supposed to have. So a lot of us are like, well, you know, it didn't happen so much with Sandra, but with other singers, like, you don't know that yet. That hasn't mm. happened yet. Mm. Don't play the next bit because it hasn't oh, happened yet. It's tough, yeah. Not telegraphing what's going to happen. Uh, and one final question. Sandra, this may be unanswerable for you, but which Verdi heroine is the most challenging of the ones that you sing? That is. Uh, vocally, the most challenging one that I sing is uh, Elena in Vesper di Siciliani, for sure, because it's five acts, three arias, Long night. <laughs> Long night. Um, dramatically, uh, this one's pretty difficult because I don't like her so much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. Because she doesn't go anywhere. So it's hard for me to keep interest in a character that I don't find all that interesting. You know, it's hard to keep that energy level up, and we've discussed this. So I, and I'm a lot sure. of happens around Elvira that she doesn't really right. right. I'm here, and everybody's running. And around she's always me. trying to like you know yeah. get in the game, and she's being pushed out every time. Yeah. So it's it's that's difficult for yeah. me to keep that tension and the interest up. Whereas somebody like Elena and Vespasiani is oh. somebody who makes things happen, Absolutely. doesn't she? Absolutely. Yes. I like that. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we have to finish this session. I want to thank Sandra and Jose Maria very much indeed. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.